Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, December 30th, and we uh, wish all of you uh, listeners today a happy new year, uh, wishing you a very happy and a healthy 2023. Uh, You've joined us today for public policy uh, this week here on Kim Radio, the wonderful uh, KYM out of Northfield. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. I'm Joe Moravchik, and partnering with me today is Steve Swigum. Rich Larson is producing the show. Today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to discuss uh, farming, the farming experiences of our guests. We have two guests with us here today. <clears throat> and uh, what they a uh, little bit about their operations, uh, uh, what they do in the winter post harvest, uh, uh, then preparation for spring planting, which will be just around the corner, uh, techniques to preserve the nutrients of the soil, among our other topics, which we might bring in forward into uh, even some international uh, uh, policy questions. Uh, our guests today join us in studio are Dave Legbold, morning, and Hannah Malika. Hello. Uh, Dave uh, Legbold farms uh, about 750 acres uh, just outside of Northfield on the north side of town. Uh, There he grows corn, soybeans, Uh, one time had a beef cattle operation. Uh, The farm has been home to Dave and his wife since uh, 1976. Uh, The Legbold farm uh, hosts students and researchers from St. Olaf College, Carleton College, the University of Minnesota, and even Western Illinois University, as I understand. Uh, much of Dave's land consists of uh, the Lester soil, which is Minnesota's state soil. Uh, this productive soil merits careful tending as it is can erode if left open to the elements. Dave's conservation practices consist of a strip, uh, strip till and no-till, uh, preservation of organic matter, integrated pest management, and other environmentally sound farming techniques which we'll discuss later in the program. It is Dave's desire to farm in such a way that the soil is not degraded, but rather built up through retention of organic matter. Additionally, he tries to make sure that any water that leaves his farm is of excellent quality. These efforts have resulted in him being named a Minnesota water hero by Governor Mark Dayton. He was also designated strip-till innovator of 2018, as well as being named 4R nutrient steward one of five farmers in the U.S. that has been noted for outstanding use of crop nutrients. More recently, the Legbold Farm was designated as a Minnesota Agricultural Water Quality Certified Farm with an additional award for climate smart farming. Dave has done numerous presentations on conservation and care for the environment over the years. In 2023, Legbold Farms will team up with the director of Wolf Ridge Environmental Learning Center Organic Farm to do presentations at the Minnesota State Fair Eco Experience titled Organic Farming and Conventional Farming, The Real Dirt. Dave and his wife have two sons and seven grandchildren. One of those grandchildren is interested in continuing the family legacy, someday taking over to manage farm operations. Dave Legvold, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you, nice to be here. Dave, water hero, that's awesome. Uh, I know uh, years from now, when it gets down to the last barrel of water or the last barrel of oil, I know which side I want to be on. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, 
Uh, that's a, <laughs> it's a wonderful uh, uh, recognition of you, and uh, congratulations. Our second guest today is Hannah Malika. Uh, Hannah has been working with her father and her grandfather on their family farm uh, from about the time she learned to walk. Uh, which probably wasn't too long ago, Hannah. You're, <laughs> Not too much, long. you're much younger than the rest of us here uh, uh, in, in the uh, interview today. Uh, over the years, she's learned how to operate heavy uh, equipment, install field drainage, uh, the tile, uh, drive semi and dump trucks, uh, chop feed for local dairy farmers, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, kind of explain what that's all about, Hannah, and, uh, and why we chop that feed. And, uh, of course, all the other farm duties that go along with it. Hannah graduated from Northfield High School and went on to attend uh, River Falls in Wisconsin, uh, where she earned a degree in agricultural business. And glad we have reciprocity, Hannah, with Wisconsin. <laughs> yes. Uh, she applies the knowledge that she learned and her degree on the, on the family farm. Hannah had the, has had the opportunity to present The View from the Tractor Seat alongside with Dave Legvold. Hannah and Dave have presented at St. Olaf, Carleton, Northfield High School, and the Minnesota State Fair. Hannah enjoys working in the ag industry and helping others learn about agriculture. One day she hopes to continue her family's farm legacy, inheriting her family's business, where she can continue to make a positive difference in agriculture. Hannah Malika, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you for having me. Hannah, we um, uh, learned a little bit about Dave's operation from Joe's introduction. Let's talk a little bit about the Malika Farms uh, to begin with. Let's uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, operation that you have, your family farm, uh, uh, how many acres, what type of product, what type of crops, uh, and your involvement. Yeah, so we do a little bit of everything. Um, we grow corn and soybeans. Uh, we run about 500 acres, so not a whole lot, but just enough to keep us busy. We also custom chop for dairy farmers in the area. We chop up feed for the dairy cattle. And then we also... I, 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 sorry to interrupt. Chop. Well, for our listeners, what is chop feed? Yeah, what so chop we chop um, hay and corn, and that's where uh, the hay and corn is ran through a big piece of machinery that chops it into smaller pieces so the dairy cattle can eat it and digest it. So it wouldn't just be the big stock of corn that's being fed to the... Um, cattle. It's chopped up into smaller pieces for the cattle. So as our listeners from town here drive out into Dakota County or Rice County and they see these uh, big bunkers with uh, tarps and tires on the top, Yes, yep. You chop up the feed feed that is protected in those bunkers. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So it will the feed that we chop up will be put into those bunkers and there it's under the tarps there uh, to protect it from the uh, weather. And we also uh, will chop feed that goes up into silos also. So not very many farmers use silos anymore, but there are a few that do. But it's mainly you're talking about the vertical silos Correct. now, the yep. ones we see. Yep, the vertical silos. The ones where Dave and I used to uh, get the blow the corn in there, the corn silage, yep. and then go up with corn silage forks and oh, throw yes. it down. Oh yes. And after we throw it down, then we would spread it down below, right, Dave? Right. Yep. <laughs> Any happy hours in the silo? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Hannah, you were telling us a little bit more about the operation before I interrupted about the chopping. Yeah, so th that's just the main thing, the t installing of tile, the trucking, uh, chopping of feed, and then we just do some random small stuff on the side. We have a bunch of construction equipment, so if anyone needs uh, trees removed or anything like that, we have the equipment to do it. So, Grandpa 
dad and granddaughter hand in hand, side by side. Yes, correct. That, that's yep. pretty neat. Yep. That's pretty neat. Yeah, I definitely enjoy working alongside them. I've learned many, many different things from them over the years, so it's been great. Tell us, you told us a little bit about the chopping of the corn salad or the hay. Tell us a little bit, of a, bit about the drainage tile. Yeah, so tile, um, many people think when I say that we install tile that we install tile into a bathroom, but that's not the case. <laughs> it's into a farmer's field. Uh, the tile, uh, excess water that's on a farmer's field drains down to the tile, and the tile is almost like a tubing, and it takes it away. And so then that way farmers are able to get into their fields, um, and it's not so they don't get stuck or it's not soaking wet for them, uh, for the farmers. So... Yep, the tile, uh, we pretty much try to tile as throughout the whole season, throughout the whole year, because the only time we would have to stop is when the frost becomes too too deep, and that's when we uh, do have to stop in the winter. But is it too deep now, or is it protected by the snow? Yeah, it's, in some places it's okay. We were... Um, a couple weeks ago we quit tiling, and we're now in the shop working on our equipment, but... The tile or the frost got to about 18 inches in a hillside, so we had to. We kind of once we saw that, we knew we had to stop for the season. So okay. yeah, the frost is pretty deep in most places at this point. And I always say that you uh, can't grow corn in wet ground. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you tile a little bit is to uh, dry out the ground a little bit, uh, so that they not only get in the field earlier and be able to uh, harvest you know, earlier because it's tough also to harvest in wet ground, but, but just the growing conditions. Uh, uh, think of yourself uh, uh, standing in the bathtub with your feet in water all day long. Your feet are going to shrivel up, right? They're gonna, the same is with, true with a corn plant. That's why you have to get some of those, that moisture, uh, oh, although maybe this last year or two, we wish we had a little more moisture maybe. But. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't terrible this last year, but yeah, we could have used a little bit. Yeah, the tile definitely does help uh, take away too much, like the excess moisture that the um, crops may not need. Mm -hmm. And so tile, tile definitely does help a lot of farmers out in that case. I've, I've also been told this, and I don't know that uh, you would uh, agree to it or not, but I've been told that the, uh, uh, and this is probably by, by people who run tiling operations, that the best investment you can do into your land is to tile the land. It, you know, depending upon whether it's dry or wet or in the hillside or not, but it's the best investment you can make for the land itself as far as production is concerned. Yeah, correct. I, I don't want to sound biased, but I definitely do agree with that. Uh, we had a farmer uh, that we tiled for this um, past year, and he was like, either I'm going to spend the money on buying a new tractor to get through this wet field, or I'm going to put in tile. And, well, we were there, and we put in over 50,000 feet of tile. So he decided to put the tile in his field, and he, um, we've installed tile for him uh, at other points uh, a couple years ago, and he definitely saw the difference and that it helped, and so he, we came back and we installed more. Joe, it sounds like an advertisement for <coughs> Malika drainage. <laughs> Go ahead, sir. No, I was going to say, because because you're moving water around, are there local and state regulations that have to be followed when you're tiling? Yeah, when it comes to wetlands, um, we have to stay a certain amount of feet back from the wetlands, and we cannot tile wetlands. That's a big no-no. We're not able to do that, and so we. And stay for good reason, by the way. Yes, for sure, for sure. Um, 
I believe you can repair tile that's already in the wetland, but you cannot add tile to that wetland. And you gotta stay a certain amount of feet away from it, and so you're not um, draining it or anything like that. The hardest person I ever worked for was was my own father because he was so demanding. How is it working for father and grandfather? Do they expect more of you? Um, I feel I feel like they sometimes expect more of me, but they know I'm capable of <laughs> doing it, so I know they're just trying to um, push me and stuff. But no, I enjoy working alongside them. We uh, we all get along very well. <clears throat> so Hannah, there is a perception among parts of the public that drain tile brings all kinds of dirty water and nutrient-laden water and dumps it in the nearest tributary. Could you comment on how we talk about that when we go out to the public? Yeah, so we, well, in our presentation, we talk about it and we show that uh, water is being sampled. And we actually, Dave had two bottles of water and one was drinking water and the other one was tile water. And by the looks of it, you cannot tell that like anything is different. It's really actually hard um, to tell what which one would be drinking water and which one would not be the drinking water. And the so, drinking water then being from a well, I assume, or um, just a tap in town. Even, it, was, it was drinking water you'd buy in the store. Oh, in plastic, the store, in the plastic yeah. bottles, just like this. Yep, yep. <laughs> and why didn't 30 years ago you and I, Dave, think about selling water in a plastic bottle? <laughs> 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 I don't know. <laughs> Dave, let's talk about your operation. What are the corn and soybeans used for? What types of products? Well, uh, corn and soybeans, first of all, do not uh, comprise food. Certain kinds of corn can be food, and soybean, of course, is used for food. But the corn and soybeans that we grow in Minnesota are mainly ingredients used to do other stuff. Um, for example, corn is used for cattle feed, a good deal of it is used to make uh, fuel, ethanol, uh, soybeans, uh, all kinds of uh, useful products made out of soybeans, everything from cosmetics to tofu and biodiesel fuel. Mm -hmm. So what we grow, uh, we don't grow for food. We grow for ingredients. And then, um, Dave, you farm here locally just outside of Northfield. Where do you store your corn and soybeans? And then how often are you transporting them? And then where are you transporting them to? Well, we have uh, a fair amount of storage on our farm, grain bins, if you will. And um, we also uh, deliver uh, corn and beans under what's called a forward contract. So for example, about this time of the year, I'll begin to look at prices for corn and beans delivered in November of 23. Okay. And I'll agree to a certain price, and then during harvest, I haul it into the elevator and satisfy that contract. But for convenience sake, it's nice to have storage bins on your farm. And we also have a crop drying system. So if we harvest corn at 24% moisture, we can't put that in the bin. We have to dry it down to at least 15% or less, and then we can put it in the bins and keep it safely until we elevate it out and put it in a truck and take it off to the, um, I haul mine to the rail terminal at Randolph. Okay. Now where's that going from there? 
I don't know. My, <laughs> my grandson is, um, I guess, what they call a senior elevator operator, and he is the guy who loads the trains. And so I've asked him, where does it go? And he said, well, some goes to the Gulf Coast, some goes to the West Coast, some go to the Great Plains where there's lots of cattle feeding operations. I uh, said, it's, it's hard to tell. That's up to the grain merchandisers in uh, the co-op organization. Mm-hmm. That's so, a CFS facility up there in yeah, Randolph. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one maybe 10 years old at this point? Is it 10, 8, 10? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> It, it's been there a while. Wonderful facility, that's for, that's for sure. It is, but um, it's already too small <laughs> because they have to close down several times sure. a year when it's full yep. and they, they don't have a, a train. A couple, of course, three times this last fall, Dave, they had to do that because they had to move product out before they could get more right. product from your farm into, uh, into storage. Yeah, and that depends on getting a train when you need it, which doesn't always happen. Yeah, uh, but part of our problem with transportation with our product, as Dave knows, and we'll talk about not only trains, but they maybe just allude a little bit to the uh, the water, but the barge problems we're having right now, both with product going downriver and yeah. inputs coming upriver. Maybe yes. you'd like to refer to that. Well, we've had uh, an exceptionally dry period, and the river levels uh, fall if you don't have enough water to keep the rivers flowing. And so I think the standard uh, barge channel needs to be nine feet deep. And in some cases, there's not enough water to run a nine-foot channel. So then that means you have to load less in the barges so that they don't take Mm -hmm. as much water. They don't get as uh, much capacity and or it has to be unloaded onto trucks at that time. I think this fall, uh, maybe it was October, there were 2,000 barges that were stuck downriver, uh, down towards the Tennessee part of the uh, of the Mississippi, mm-hmm. or um, 2,000 barges that could not move upriver because of the water levels that as Dave is talking about. Yep. Uh, Dave, you also mentioned forward contracting. Can we explain that a little bit for the listeners, too, who um, maybe don't understand that marketing is as big a part of agriculture as production? Oh, yes. Marketing is, if you will, kind of a make and break of most any farming operation. So at this time of the year, I would give my grain marketer, Steve Svigum, a call. And I'd say, Steve... What's the price of new crop beans to be delivered in November? And he'd say, well, it's $14 and 30 some cents. And I'd say, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> and I would wait. What did you months. sell for two years ago? Oh. $7? Yeah, something yeah, okay. like that. <laughs> so I would, I would work with my grain merchandiser, and I may put in what's, what's just called a, a sell order. So I would say, Steve, when it gets to $4.80 or $14.80 a bushel, call me. And then they'll call you and say, it reached that target price and we sold your 5,000 bushel lot. And uh, so there's a lot of trust between marketer and uh, the marketing organization. Um, and so uh, a little bit of forward sales is a good thing. 
It protects yourself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like to have uh, somewhere about 40% of my crops sold yeah. by the 4th of July. Okay. You said, uh, Dave, I think that you're looking at uh, the uh, forward contracting of crop for next November, which would be November of 2023. Yep. I think my brothers and I, uh, I, I'm not into the marketing aspect of it. I, I'm into the labor, the work part of it. But I think my brother's already contracted some crop for 2024. Yes, yes. I've, uh, I've sold stuff three years out mm-hmm. and uh, it turned out to be a really good move. At, t- uh, at times, it can also be turned out to be a really bad move. <laughs> sometimes it but, turns out to be just the opposite. But but you have to protect yourself when you think you can sell for a profit. You know, whatever that profit may be, uh, you better lock it in, yeah. uh, or at least lock in forty, fifty percent as you do yeah. on your farm. And if you try to to hit the high price, uh, that's not a good thing because uh, it's a good thing to sell on an average throughout the year. Some days you're high, some days are low, but the average generally should turn out so that you uh, you do okay. Yeah, if you uh, try to aim for the high, you probably will sell for the low. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you try to just get the, 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 the high price. And prices are pretty good right now, Dave. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Uh, we'll get into the cost of inputs in a little bit too, but uh, just the price of your product, your corn, your soybeans, uh, any oats or wheat on the farm there? No. Nope. No, just, just corn and soybeans. Uh, historically, the price is uh, at a pretty historical high. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty good pricing now. And uh, I believe that um, you know, we're seeing uh, inflation in many uh, segments of the economy. And uh, crops are no exception. So we have corn that is uh, better priced than it was two years ago, mm-hmm. and beans much better than two years ago. And um, who knows where it'll go? Uh, it could go up, could go down, even if there's a, a weather scare. If we have uh, bad weather for planting and there's significant delays, that usually drives the price up a little bit. Lots of things drive that price. Weather that David's talking about, uh, the war in Ukraine has an effect upon the oh, yes. price uh, of, of, of our product, uh, Dave. Uh, uh, there's lots of transportation and uh, getting crop down the uh, river, as uh, we yeah. talked about just a little bit earlier. There's, there's lots of things that you don't want to ever have a drought in your area. You want the drought in, drought in South America. <laughs> no, we don't wish it on them either. We don't wish it on them. But uh, so, Joe? I was going to say, Hannah. You're trained in driving a semi-truck, you're your CDL. Are you trucking corn and soybeans yourself? So I haven't uh, trucked corn and soybeans yet. Um, I, I probably will pretty soon or in the future here. Uh, I've just mainly uh, trucked uh, sand, dirt, gravel, stuff like that for uh, different customers. Um, maybe you could follow through a little bit more on the prices that Dave and I were talking about, Hannah, because the Malika farms do the same thing. I assume you do some forward contracting. Uh, you obviously sell your product. While the price of the product is pretty high right now, a historical high for the corn and soybeans, the costs are also at a historical high. The input costs. Uh, input costs of uh, fertilizers, of, uh, of uh, crop protections, the sprays, uh, uh, labor. Uh, we talk about that as well. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, the experiencing that we're seeing of cost increases. 
Yeah, so um, prices are definitely um, higher right now. And the, like for an example, the price of fuel is really high. And we no-till plant, and so we're not in the field having to run a tractor with a digger or anything like that. So that definitely helps uh, cut back on the price of how much fuel is being used. Mm -hmm. um, so it definitely, the prices are up, and they definitely have an impact on uh, farmers right now. But I think that, and in in uh, college, I took a, a markets and prices um, class, and it was interesting to see how much they really do change and how much it can have an impact on the farm itself. And then going back to my to our family farm to work, I've been able to just do different uh, things to watch those prices and along with uh, forward contracting, but. My dad and my dad and grandpa, mainly my dad, uh, takes care of that side of things. I'm more of like you said, more of the laborer. <laughs> I'm, I'm just there. They tell me what I need to do, and I do it. So. But you'll be leading into that in the next few years, and in yes. a yep. in a decade, you'll probably be doing um, all the purchasing and all the selling as your grandpa and your father are doing right now. I'm, I'm going to guess as you lead into the operation. Most likely, yeah. I hope to take it over one day, and so I'm definitely learning alongside them. Whatever they do, I try to get in on, and so then I'm able to um, have the same no amount of knowledge they do when I uh, take over the farm. Since Hannah isn't uh, purchasing the inputs, Dave, and you are now, with your, I'm assuming you're much like my brothers and I. We're, we're buying inputs a little bit earlier uh, in the year. We're, uh, yep. we're buying inputs for next spring this fall or uh, in December. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, the input prices and your purchasing timeline. Well, my history with uh, forward purchasing of inputs has been uh, somewhat checkered <laughs> because you, you pull the trigger on, we'll say, uh, fertilizer and the sure shooting it goes down in the spring. So then you're paying higher prices when you could have paid lower prices. So I tend to be a, a pay-as-you-go kind of farmer, and that has, that has played out pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many people who like to have their fertilizer purchased. Uh, there has not been a year when I have not been able to get the commodities, the chemicals, the fertilizer, the seed that I need. Okay. Uh, uh, many farmers do purchase ahead of time, oh, yes. not only for the protection that they will have uh, assurance of the product being there, but maybe for tax obligations, tax reasons too. You probably do some purchasing in December before the end of the tax year. Sure. Yeah. That does take place. Uh, Dave, Steve just alluded to drought this past summer and much in Minnesota. How does drought affect corn and soybeans? Were you able to get the yields that you're hoping for even during a summer of drought? Well, right up front, the, the yields this year were somewhat less than we would <clears throat> like to have. Um, both uh, Hannah's farm and uh, my farm, uh, in addition to my son Mark's farm, are all no-till, mm -hmm. which means we are not out there with heavy tillage tools stirring up the soil giving up uh, a couple inches of valuable groundwater or soil water. <clears throat> so a no-till environment is, is uh, kind of a lifesaver when it comes to a drought year. 
And we are seeing that our weather patterns are, sometimes we have real aggressive storm events, thunderstorms that are just real whoppers. And then like this past summer, we have something that I term a flash drought. But a no-till farmer can see the soil stay in place during those significant rainfall events and can rest assured that there is soil moisture available because he hasn't stirred it up and given up the soil moisture through tillage. And tillage has, has other consequences we can talk about later. And how about, how about you? I know both the farms are in close proximity to each other, but rainfall can be depending based on location. How was your yields uh, this, this past summer despite the drought? So like Dave said, the yields weren't, um, they weren't too bad because of the no-till planting. It held that moisture a little bit better than maybe uh, another farm would hold. Uh, we did get a little bit different uh, rainfall than Dave, but not by uh, too much. So th with the no-till planting, it definitely does help hold that moisture. Dave, in Minnesota, we have uh, variable soils. So the soil in Hannah's neighborhood <clears throat> is quite different than north of town. It's different on the west side of the Cannon River than it is on the east side. And so when you go from field to field or even within a field, uh, the yield variability can be significant based on soil type. If you go from a heavier soil, a dark soil, into a sandy knob, um, you can watch the yield meter on the combine all of a sudden go down. Dave, you've been farming a long time. Over your long career, have you observed changes in the climate, perhaps related to drought or precipitation? Oh, but yes. Oh, yes. Um, and I think uh, teaming up with Hannah has been good for me because she brought forward, I think, a map of precipitation changes in Minnesota. And um, what was the earliest year, Hannah? Was that? Mm, that is a good question. 1930 yeah. something? Yeah, it was around yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. in 1930, uh, there was an area in far northwestern Minnesota in the far north Red River Valley that got less than 15 inches of rain per year. And uh, in the far southeastern corner, there was an area that got between 25 and 30 inches of rain per year. That was, that was the wet spot. Now, that dry area in the northwestern part of the state has disappeared. It's 20 to 25 inches way up north there. And in the southeast corner, uh, in fact, the whole east side of Minnesota is now well over 35 inches of rain per year all the way down the east side from Duluth all the way down to uh, the tip of the state near Fillmore County. So we find that there is significant climate change. So if you have an area that uh, was productive in the 50s, it may be soggy today. And that's where drain tile comes in, not as uh, a way to get rid of water, but as a conservation tool. Because if you can uh, dry the soil just a little bit through drain tile, then the water will soak in instead of running off across the top and carrying off soil and nutrient into 
the nearest tributary. So mm. tiling uh, I regard as a conservation activity. Dave, how much rain did we receive here uh, last summer? You said 35 inches is the average now. It's increased to that. I doubt we got 35 inches. Oh, no, no. I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I, I'd have to. And in the year before, the last couple of years have been, you know, I, I know it has been 35. I don't know if it's 20 or 25 or 30. I have no idea. But uh, A good place to go to find that data, it would be the Carleton Observatory website. Okay. And they have a rainfall uh aggregated data right there over in kenyan where i come from uh where our farm is uh we jealously always uh, listen to kim radio and hear that uh that you over here in northfield area are getting more rain than we are <laughs> you're getting you're getting the inch and a half and we're getting two tenths <laughs> that's because you're norwegian not czech <laughs> that's that's very possible uh malika son right yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do a little, uh, we'd certainly want to get back to this question that we're asking about, about prices and inputs and uh, technology, but I'd like to do a little history, if I could, just for a second, and ask you both about the agricultural revolution in the future. Um, now, I'm going to miss some centuries or decades here, but it seems to me the, the first agricultural revolution happened many, many centuries ago. Uh, maybe even thousands of years ago when we, uh, uh, we went from that period of transition from being hunters and gatherers in a society to, uh, to, to start doing some stationary farming. A thousand, maybe 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> then we went into the second revolution, which was basically in the uh, 18th century. Uh, with major farmer, farming techniques uh, changes uh, that included things like uh, uh, maybe livestock breeding, uh, crop rotations, uh, uh, maybe beginning of mechanical farm equipment. The third revolution, I would say, probably took place in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, 1940s, 50s, and 60s, when we got uh, with irrigation and tiling, uh, more for pesticides and fertilizers, and plant breeding. I, those revolutions have happened. The fourth revolution is what we're on the cusp of. It's what we're on the verge of, Dave. It's the technology revolution in farming. Can you talk to us and the listeners of Kim today a little bit about technology now in farming and maybe coming into the future? Uh, the use of drones, uh, the use of the GPS system. So you might not even have to sit in that tractor uh, in a couple, three years. Uh, it'll be done all, uh, all by the GPS. Tell us about the technology revolution that we are, I think, on the edge of. Well, technology has been a great boon to agriculture. Uh, both uh, Hannah's farm and our farm are no-till farms. That would not be a possibility without the addition of a simple chemical called glyphosate or Roundup. Uh, glyphosate is a tool that is used Unfortunately, it was misused because glyphosate came on the scene as the silver bullet to kill out all the weeds if you used GMO crops, which is the second thing. GMO crops, well, they'll tolerate the uh, spraying of certain chemicals. Mm -hmm. um, so these advancements are great, but if they're misused, for example, you spray everything with Roundup year after year after year, it's going to kill the soil. 
Mother Nature, well, no, not necessarily. Uh Mother Nature is pretty cagey. And so now we have weeds that have survived a little dose of, of chemical, and they produce seeds. But the seeds then have an element of resistance built in. So we have ragweed that is resistant um, to the common chemicals we would use. Uh, we have uh, all kinds of things that have evolved within my lifetime, within Hannah's lifetime. And it is, uh, it's scary stuff. I never heard of water hemp 20 years ago. Oh, no. Now it's uh, one of our worst weeds that we have. Yes. So there's the technology of chemicals. There's the technology of uh, genetically modified uh, seeds. Uh, We have um, GPS steering for Mm -hmm. equipment. In your combine and your tractors? Uh, not my combine yet. Okay. Uh, but uh, tractors, yes. Uh, because uh, I use a tool that is manufactured in Ferbo by Environmental Tillage Systems, the strip till machine. <clears throat> and if you use a GMO or a GPS steering, you avoid overlapping and skips. And with a strip-till machine, you want the rows to be straight, not because it looks nice, but because it is uh, efficient. So uh, GPS steering is a a really great thing. There's a lot of uh, material that you can gather through data analysis. So you can do uh, yield analysis, and then you can adjust fertilizer, you can adjust seed rates, and all of that. So Hannah, what's your take on all this uh, modern stuff? So technology can be a good thing, and uh, like Dave said, the GPSs and the tractors and stuff, uh, we have all older equipment, and we don't have any GPS in any of our tractors or combines. So you have to drive straight. Correct. We, <laughs> we got to drive straight, exactly. One more planting and stuff, we just got to make sure we're doing it the right way. And But we do have uh, GPS in our tile plow, so when we install our field drainage tile, uh, as we're driving along, it it will track where we install the tile. And then from that screen, it's put onto my laptop where then I can create a uh, tile map. So then the farmer, and it's an aerial photo of where the tile was put into their field. And I'm able to give the farmer, um, the customer that uh, map. So then that way they can always uh, see where the tile was installed. So we do use uh, GPS for tiling, but we don't have it in any of our equipment otherwise. We just kind of do it old school, and sometimes that's okay. And so, Dave, do you use drones at all? Uh, I have a drone, and I have used uh, drone data, but it's been mainly uh, brought to me by uh, the Minnesota Department of Ag because they come out and want to look over uh, my saturated buffer to see how that's working, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> so I'm. I'm not a big fan of using drones to analyze my crop stuff just yet. Um, uh, But that may come, and and I'll I'll tinker with my drone a little bit to to get it to fly. Uh, We also um, have older equipment, and um, I worked for John Deere here in town, and I was uh, in, the, in the throes of buying my strip-till machine, which requires GPS steering. And so I went to uh, my friendly John Deere dealer, and I said, uh, 
can you fix up my 25-year-old John Deere tractor with steering? Well, uh, yeah, we can. And it's the little wheel that drives the steering wheel back and forth. And I said, I can't have that. I'll get my necktie tied up in that steering wheel. So <clears throat> the solution was to trade tractors for a tractor that had double the amount of hours, pay $40,000 to boot, and then I could buy the steering system. So I walked across the road to the Case IH dealer, and I said, what can you do for me? Oh yeah, we've got a great system. It's made by Trimble. It's, it's slick. It's just like an original equipment uh, system. And so all of my older tractors do have modern GPS steering. In addition, I use a what's called a cell phone bridge. Uh, most steering systems require a correction signal. It used to be you had a post sticking up in the field and that was your reference point. Now, uh, on my machinery, I have, uh, my machinery talks to cell phone towers and they don't jump around much. So, uh, my tractor will talk to about five different cell phone towers and it'll tell me where I am on the face of the earth to within one inch. So it's, it's unbelievable. Modern technology. Yep. And I, we, we farmers who are of the older crowd um, depend on people like Hannah who have been to school to get an advanced degree in agriculture. Uh, I spoke at the U of M and I had a, a bright student who wrote, raised uh, her hand and she said, so you've been farming for 40 some years. How does it feel to know just about everything there is to know about farming? <laughs> and I said, you know, that's not the case. And what really irritates me is I'm so old and there's so much stuff yet to learn and I'm afraid I'm gonna run out of time. So I'm depending on you so you need to get on it and learn everything there is to learn. What a great perspective you have, Dave. I got a few follow-up questions for you both. Okay. 35, 40 years ago, I was just farm labor. I, I, uh, I detasseled corn. Ooh. Ugly job. <laughs> yeah. I think I was in grade school when I was doing it. But I also baled hay. I was part of the pea harvest, cultivated beets. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about is completely new to me. But uh, first of all, you talked about weeds being problematic. What are some other threats to crops besides weeds, perhaps bugs or funguses, if you could both comment on that, Hannah? Um, so there's, I don't know, there's a few different things. Um, as far as, I can't remember the exact name of the certain bug, uh, well, Dave, can you help me out? West, Western corn borer? Yeah, there's a there's a few different... Um, Rootworm? Yeah, there's a few of them. Earworm? <laughs> exactly, like Dave was just listening them off. So there's a few different things that can definitely have an impact on the crop and pretty much ruin it, really. And so uh, I don't know exactly... My dad is more into this. Um, but I don't know exactly what you would do to um, take care of that problem. I don't know if, Dave, you want to follow up? Yeah. Um, we have seen a shift in uh, insect pressure. Um, in corn, there's some notable ones. There's earworm, where uh, there's a worm that eats off the end of the ear. 
Uh, there's a corn borer, which is that's a that's a long history insect. It's been around since I was a little kid, in which you have uh, a, a caterpillar that burrows into the stalk, and that's not a, necessarily a bad thing, but it carries bacteria with it, mm. and that bacteria is within the stalk, and the stalk tends to rot while the corn is still growing, and then the the stalk falls over. Uh, the other one is corn rootworm. A rootworm will live in the soil and it nibbles off the roots of the corn. That's not a good thing. Mm. So all of these pests are addressed by using GMO crops. Uh, if you think about uh, a particular fungal material called Bacillus thuringiensis, it is toxic to these caterpillars, these larvae. So if you have a Bacillus thuringiensis genetic material spliced into the corn plant and it carries that trait in the roots, when there is a susceptible caterpillar that starts munching on those roots, it will die. And uh, I've, I've spoken with uh, my f uh, organic farmer colleagues about this and oh no we can't use GMO seeds but yet some organic farmers purchase powdered bacillus thuringiensis the powdered uh, stuff mm -hmm. and they dust it on their plants so you can use bacillus thuringiensis but you can't splice it into the genetic material of the crop. So I, you know, I'm not going to make a judgment call one way or the other. But that's how the uh, genetically modified crops work. It's through a genetic material that is spliced into the plant that takes care of the the insects. Now the other side, what we used to do was to spray toxic chemicals known as organophosphates, evil, evil chemicals. And we'd spray crops with that. And that does uh, reside in the soil and resides on the plant. Um, I would much rather forego spraying and just use the genetically modified plant than to spray a toxic chemical because some of those chemicals are what we call legacy chemicals. They last a long time. Mm -hmm which is something I look at when I'm shopping for chemicals. I look for something called, what is, what is the half-life of this chemical? Nuclear materials have half-life. Chemicals have half-life. So for example, Roundup has a half-life of, I think, 47 days. There are other chemicals that we can spray that have a half-life of two days. I would much rather use those so they degrade uh, much faster and aren't uh, part of the soil. You mentioned um, no-till and you told us a little bit about no-till, but you also talked about strip-till. Could you expand on that for our yeah. audience what strip-till is? Yeah. Uh, I think Hannah's farm is a pure no-till farm. Uh, they don't do any turning of the soil before planting, is that correct? That is correct. Yep. yep. And they have specialized tools. You can take a common corn planter from the 70s and you can add a few attachments and make it into a no-till planter quite easily. Mm 
Um, there's also something called no-till soybean planters, which are about 20 feet wide, and they just uh, dig a little trench and drop the soybean seed in there, and um, you've got, got your bean crop planted. A strip-till machine is a compromise between no-till and uh, heavy-till. Okay. So what a strip-till machine does is to have a wavy coulter that goes through the soil about eight, nine inches deep, and it tills a path about six inches wide and about eight inches deep. And the beauty of some of those strip-till machines is they also carry a fertilizer cart. And there is a GPS-driven system that meters the fertilizer and puts it into that tilled row. So your fertilizer is right where you want the plants to grow. It's not broadcast over the entire field. And then you have to dig it in with some kind of a tool, a field cultivator or a disc or something. So the strip-till machine is a, a great advancement in soil conservation. Uh, lastly, you mentioned uh, saturated buffer. Explain that to our audience, too. Okay. Uh, most people understand what buffers are. It's a vegetative uh, strip along a waterway or along uh, yeah. a pond, a wetland. And what that does is to work to intercept soil and nutrient that may move across the soil in a rainstorm. A saturated buffer works the same way. But we have uh, tile water that uh, folks like the Malikas are really good about uh, putting together. And what happens to the tile water? Well, most folks will say, say, dump it into the nearest slough or dump it into a stream. I have a stream uh, that abuts my farm, and uh, I have a fair amount of tile with a discharge point into the stream. But before the water goes into the stream, there is a blocking mechanism. So if you think of a grass strip along a creek, there is also a tile line that goes underneath that grass strip. So we force the water out into that uh, growing grass strip near the stream. And so the tile water is not being discharged into a stream. It's being used to grow grass or trees or something of the sort. So it's, we're basically recycling. And through research with the U of M, we've found that we can recycle fully 45% of the tile water that comes off our land. So one of the solutions to dealing with tile water is don't let it go into the stream in the first place. And there are other techniques you can use beside the saturated buffer. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the buffers, uh, Joe, I think we now have a uh, state law uh, that says uh, we have to have buffer, 50-foot buffer strips along any uh, stream, waterway, uh, creek, whatever a, a, a water path may be, um, that these buffer strips are there and mandated by law and, and enforced by uh, local uh, USDA uh, associations. Yeah, Yeah, I was working with the Cannon River Watershed Partnership, now Clean River Partners, uh, when the buffer law was just coming into effect. Maybe five years ago, Dave? 
Oh, ten, ten, I think ten, maybe ten, ten years. years ago. Yeah, and it was amazing how um, resistant some folks were to that. You know, it's just absolutely the right thing to do, but people were concerned about giving up all that land that I could be growing crops on. Well, you can grow hay on it. Uh, yeah. you, you may, so we, ha we have a number of buffer strips on our farm because we're in a valley, uh, mm -hmm. Sogan Valley to the east of us here. So it's mandated that we have these strips. And But we're finding that with the hay and the uh, grasses, we're able to utilize that buffer strip very well. I, you know, I can understand the opposition, Dave. You know, the Constitution talks about private property, uh, the right to ownership of private property. And, you know, some folks are saying that we're being mandated and told what to do, but we're still paying property taxes on it. You know, well, you, sure. You can, yeah. you, you can understand some type of reaction. Yeah, uh, I can understand that, that thinking, but I believe uh, we need to do a better job of educating folks about the common good because my grandchildren want to go swim in the Billsby Reservoir. Agreed, agreed. And uh, that has been, uh, that's been a, a nasty lake. It's, it, it's turned green every summer, and there's a lot of nutrient that hits that. By July, you don't want to swim there too. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and where does that nutrient come from? Mainly agriculture. A, a lot of it is run off from yeah. agriculture, a yeah. lot of it. Um, <clears throat> just stepping back just real quickly, uh, uh, one thing I think that's good about living here in Minnesota and, uh, uh, you know, we suffered through last, we suffered through last week being very, very cold, uh, frigidly cold, terrible cold. But when we talk, uh, Dave is uh, talking about the pests that we have to take care of, the weeds we have to take care of, to some degree, to some degree, um, rotation of crops that Dave does and the Malkas do helps in controlling uh, those weeds and pests. But to some degree, having 30 below temperatures probably takes care of some of the problems that they can't take care of in Alabama and or Georgia or further south where they don't have those uh, very, very cold temperatures. It uh, sure keeps the riffraff out. <laughs> it, it does. Um, as we move forward here, and, and maybe even towards uh, towards uh, the end of the uh, public policies uh, today, um, talk to us a little bit, both of you, about the challenges that you're facing, the challenges of the farming operations we're facing now and maybe into the next years, <clears throat> and the optimism that you might have for agriculture being successful. Uh, um, give us the major challenges we're facing. And, and the opportunities we have for uh, optimism into the future. Okay, so currently I, I'd say, like we brought up earlier, the one of the main challenges like is the higher prices. That really has an impact on The us. input prices you're, yes, you're talking. Yeah, correct, correct. So like that has an impact on us and the people around us because if, we, if we're having to pay more uh, for the input um, as input prices and stuff, then the customers are gonna, or the people getting the material, or getting the product that we're giving them, such as like the crops and stuff, they're also gonna have to pay more. Even when it comes to installing tile, like prices have gone up in like crazy, and so the prices of tile have increased. So that means we're having to charge our customers more, which, in a way, they're okay with it because they know they need the tile. But at the same time, it also affects them. So I just think that the input prices is a major challenge. Um, as far as that goes, but I don't know if Dave has another challenge. 
Well, I think, uh, in my mind, having been around on this earth for a while, uh, I take a great deal of optimism from folks like this young lady sitting next to me because she has been to college, she has her degree in agriculture, and uh, she didn't learn all that stuff by experimentation and mistakes. She learned it from the classroom, which I think is a great thing because she comes right out of college with a great deal of knowledge that I never had. So I think uh, the sense of optimism I have lies in the younger people who are coming into agriculture. Just no two ways about it. And I, I know that there's way, way too many old Norwegian Lutheran farmers like me. <laughs> and you're um, looking at me too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so that um, the changes that we need to make uh, don't come easily for some folks. What change is important then, and I would say that, uh, Dave, this is how I portray it. And we always want things better for our children Correct. than we had it ourselves. Um, that's true in most families and most lives, people feel like that. I would say that we also want to leave our land, our soil, better for our children or a future than, than we have it for ourselves. So yeah. would you agree? I would, and that's, that's one of the huge challenges that we see with Minnesota. Because if we look at states around us, who is doing no-till and strip-till? Who is working to conserve the soil? North Dakota is about 40%. South Dakota is in the high 30s. Kansas and Nebraska are in the, the 30s and high 20s. You go across to Iowa, Illinois, and all the way over to western Pennsylvania. Those states are somewhere in the 20%. Where do you think Minnesota comes in with no-till and strip-till? Uh, I'm going to guess. Uh, just knowing of my neighbors, 15%, I'm going to guess. I, I don't know that that's even close. Try 5%. So Minnesota is well behind when it comes to using conservation tillage to build our soils and to preserve our soils. Uh, there is a map that Hannah and I use in our uh, presentations. It's called Minnesota's Big Brown Spot. And what it does is to start at the Canadian border in the Red River Valley, and it goes down through St. Cloud and down over to Rochester, the whole southwestern part of the state. In the fall, if you take an aerial photo or a, a photo from space, uh, that whole part of Minnesota is black. That's why it's called Minnesota's Big Brown Spot. So you can see the tillage from space. It's, and if you look around Northfield, a good deal of the soil gets turned over in the fall. And it so doesn't that have black to. is suffering of potential erosion, whether that be wind erosion or water erosion. Well, there's, there's another uh, scientific principle at play here, and that is when you till the soil, oxygen is incorporated into the soil, and soily bugs need oxygen to function, and their job is to digest organic material. So you get a dose of oxygen, you've got organic material handy, those soily bugs just go crazy. They digest the organic matter. And 
through natural processes, they burp that off as CO2. So a good deal of the CO2 that we see in the atmosphere has been put there from, from agricultural practices, tillage to be specific. Mm-hmm. But it's also been taken out of the air, CO2, by those millions and billions of corn plants out there too. Oh yes, corn plants are, are great at sucking up um, <clears throat> CO2 and turning it into sugars. Um, Joe, go ahead. Hannah, you and Dave put together a program to present at local high schools and colleges and at the State Fair. What is the View from the Tractor Seat program? So the View from the Tractor Seat is a presentation that, like you said, Dave and I have presented at various uh, locations. It um, talks a lot about what we uh, covered here today. Um, The things I cover in that presentation are cover crops, uh, soil erosion, temperature of the soil with and without a cover crop, precipitation changes, installation of tile, and uh, drainage water management. So it just kind of gives a little bit of a outlook of those types of uh, topics within agriculture. Explain what a cover crop is for our um, audience. So a cover crop is planted to manage uh, soil erosion, uh, fertility, uh, water, weeds, pest diseases, and um, wildlife and biodiversity. Um, it can be an off-season crop planted after harvesting the cash crop. Okay. And my, my job in that presentation is to actually trace the evolution of the tractor seat. So we show tractor seats from turn of the century into the 1900s. And then uh, early tractors were that, that steel bucket seat that was a real bun buster and now we have uh, modern seats in modern tractors that you adjust the ride characteristics with your laptop so uh, the tractor seat has evolved magnificently along with tractors but then how are we doing on tillage have we seen similar advancements and as alluded to earlier, Minnesota has not. What do you think, Steve? Got any, got any more questions? Well, I, I think that we've had two wonderful guests yeah, talking sure. to us about um, the future of agriculture, uh, the opportunities as well as the challenges that exist. Uh, there's maybe no absolute right answers, and there's probably no absolute wrong answers. Uh, um, you know, lots of farmers do things differently. Um, but we, uh, we have an agricultural community in this state that is uh, vital to the success of Minnesota. Without agriculture, Minnesota wouldn't run, Joel. Uh, and uh, I wish we could have got into some discussion about uh, international markets, uh, uh, China, uh, uh, our sales to Mexico, which are somewhat blocked because of the GMO that you were speaking about, Dave. Uh, I uh, wish we could have got in that, but I think we've kind of run our time for the day, and maybe it'll be another program later <laughs> in the spring. Maybe we can get out to the Malaka Farms and the Legbo Farms uh, in May when uh, they're doing the no-tail corn and soybean planting. Uh, that would be a great idea for a show. Well, let's wrap it up here. Uh, we'll end it. Dave and Hannah, Steve and I want to thank you for the conversation and insights this morning. That concludes this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. 
I'm Joe Mravchik, my co-host today, Steve Swigum. Don't forget us to join us next week when Glenn Castor joins Rich Larson and Bruce Moreland on the program. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us on Public Policy This Week. Have a great weekend, everyone. And Happy New Year. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.